So welcome to episode four of the Africa Intel podcast series. My name is Fuki Olokun and I am an Africa Intel professional and I will be hosting this podcast. Today I am joined by Ms. Tanwa Ashiro to discuss her experiences navigating the Intel sector in Nigeria. I will also discuss with her some issues facing the Intel and security sector in the region. Um, Tanwa Shiro is the founder of Bulwark Intelligence, a global risk advisory company. She's also a US Air Force veteran with over 14 years of experience in intelligence analysis, working in the US Department of Defense and the US National Security Agency. She served 180 days in Afghanistan and was involved in counterinsurgency, counterterrorism operations, in Southwest Asia, Middle East, and Africa. She holds an MA in Intelligence Studies from the School of Security and Global Studies at the American Military University, West Virginia. In the security industry, Tanwa has rendered consultation services and training to several local and international corporations, including the Northern Alliance Treaty Organization, NATO, the Nigerian Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, Total EP, Nigerian Navy, Nigerian Customs Service, Halogen Security, Nestle Nigeria, Nigeria uh, Lagos State Emergency Management Agency, and many more. Tanwa features regularly in local and international media publications, including the Guardian newspaper, Nigeria, Nigeria's Channels Television, Sunrise, Daily Morning Show, The Financial Times, CNBC Africa, BBC World, Reuters, and more. So Tanwa, thank you and welcome to the Africa Intel podcast. Hi, Buki, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So I will go ahead and dive right into some of the questions and the issues we're going to be discussing today. Um, so in your bio, I mentioned that you um, founded um, Bulwark Intelligence, which is a global risk advisory um, company here in Nigeria. Um, so I would start by asking, um, there are currently Intel providers in the region um, and I'm sure there were Intel providers prior to you establishing Bulwark. So why did you feel there was a need to establish Bulwark? Um, was there some sort of gap that you had noticed with um, Intel providers on the ground, either local or international, or um, why did you feel like that was something that was necessary? Okay, well, that's a really good question. So there are actually a lot of private um, Intel providers that exist in Nigeria. And as at the time when I started Bulwark, uh, most of them were actually international companies. So you had the uh, Control Risks, I think, which was one of the main ones, uh, one of the main players in, in the industry, um, Garda World, and, you know, Salama, Fikura, and you have all these guys. Now they do provide physical security, but then as part of that, as part of their risk management consultancy, um, they also provide intelligence services. So intelligence services um, in the private sector has to do with just uh, informing your clients about any threats that exist. Of course, Intel is about timeliness. So the ability to send that information out within um, the stipulated timeframe. So making sure that they can mitigate any risks that they would be exposed to. And just to give you a brief example, if some of these companies, for example, focus on moving um, high valued personnel or VIPs from say the hotel uh, in Borno State to an NGO that they're going to visit, um, they provide the security escort for that, right? First of all, they provide the threat assessment, um, sort of like an intelligence um, analysis report on the area, um, identifying all the risks, all the threats, all the hazards, and then providing mitigation. So how do you minimize your exposure to these things? And then while they're actually in the middle of their movement from point A to point B, um, they're also going to be providing real-time um, intelligence alerts or intel updates. So what we call either spot alerts. Mm -hmm. 
and or CITREPS. Uh, so that's been reported in real time. Uh, so again, that's how you package things for the private sector. Now, I started Bulwark really out of just um, having a bit of difficulty in translating my skill as an intelligence analyst in the US military into the private sector. Now, I know when you're separating from the military, they put you through these uh, transition classes. And the purpose of that is to show you how you can translate your skill from the public sector into the private sector. Now, interestingly, in a place like America, you find that most intelligence analysts um, end up still working in that same space. So they end up working as defense contractors, uh, supporting uh, military contracts. So you don't really, you know, the only thing that changes is, is the clothes that you're wearing to work every day, right? At one point you were wearing your boots and your uniform. And then the next day you're wearing civilian clothes, but you're still working in that same building. So it wasn't too much of a change. But when, you know, me moving to Nigeria, I had to figure out how do I translate that? Because now I don't have access to classified information. Um, let's say I was working with the NSA, for example. The NSA is not based outside of the U.S. Um, so what do I do? And uh, this is where that dilemma came from. But I just, you know, decided at that point, you know what, let me start writing um, analysis reports, right? And at the time, there were a lot of the bombing, I think the suicide bombings in the Northeast had really picked up uh, where the Boko Haram, the terrorist group operating there had started using females as suicide bombers. Nigerians didn't quite understand that fact. We hadn't really been exposed to the idea of suicide bombers. And so I started writing analysis reports about these things. And that's how Bulwark was birthed. Um, and so, uh, so at the time, those international players, the international um, private intelligence companies existed, and they were the more uh, visible ones. But then the local companies didn't quite get a grasp of that and weren't quite doing um, that work then. Now, things have changed quite a lot in the last five years. Uh, we started seeing more of them, more of the local private intel companies spring up. Um, and many of them are doing the same thing we do, which is they're still focused on, on uh, physical security, but then there is an angle of um, information services, which is what we call it, uh, that's attached to that. And so um, that's, yeah, so that's pretty much how, how this came about. Okay, awesome. Thanks for that backstory. Uh, as a follow-up question, do you think the local Intel providers from an Intel perspective now that's not considering their, you know, physical security services, just their Intel. Um, would you say the Intel they provide or you're able to provide as a um, local Intel provider is better or in any way different than what the international Intel providers are able to bring forth? Well, so the challenge that we're having, I think in the local space has to do with writing style. Um, so it's interesting, you know, we were trying to hire some more Intel analysts and, you know, I remember having this conversation with HR and I said, hey, you know, make sure key qualities we're looking for, make sure that they write well, you know, make sure they can, um, they understand and they can read well. And, and I had the HR person tell me, ma'am, you know, just so you know, um, we really do have difficulties finding um, graduates and I'll use Nigeria in particular, but our case is not unique to Nigeria. This is unique to a lot of African countries. Um, but we are having challenges finding graduates who are, who are good in writing, um, but we're gonna try our best nonetheless, okay? And so that is where I think the main difference is, is in the talent. You know, intelligence really has to do with a lot of just reading and writing. It's reading, it's uh, conducting analytic um, thinking, and trying to analyze the information that you're looking at. There's a lot of data out there. It's one thing to share uh, you know, data about incidents that are taking place, but how do you tie it all together? How do you put on that some cognitive um, exercises, uh, looking for trends, looking for patterns, just uh, you know, overlaying the information with other sources of intel to paint a, a fuller picture of, of the situation. Um, that's currently not happening. And I'll tell you this, from what I've seen with the private intel providers, um, a lot of the support they're giving is more tactical. 
I believe. And that's because like what I explained earlier, you're trying to protect your client while they're moving from point A to point B. And so I think the Nigerian ones really do focus on the tactical aspect of things. Oh, this incident has happened. That incident has happened. Very rarely are you having them just kind of zoom out a little bit, take a couple of steps back and let's look at things from a strategic point of view. Let's look at everything that has happened over the past 10 years and let's conduct the analysis on that to figure out what the trends, what the tactics, what the procedures, what the patterns are. And so that's kind of what is still missing now. Uh, and I think as well, that is the difference between some of the, the international providers versus the local ones. You know, the international ones understand the importance of providing both, uh, all, both strategic, operational, and tactical intelligence, whereas the local ones tend to provide just more of the tactical intelligence. Okay, yeah, you made you made some really, really great points, which I absolutely agree with, um, especially regarding um, strategic and tactical intelligence, especially within the region. You rarely find um, situations where we're, we're stepping back to ask, okay, over the 10 years, what has the pattern been? What has the trend been? Is there, what are the reasons why we keep seeing these things happen? And I know um, recently in one of the groups we're both on, you mentioned, you know, one way to know or to predict what will happen is just by looking at history because, you know, history tends to repeat itself, especially in, you know, in the region. It's very likely that um, if, if a situation happened and it unfolded a certain way, chances are um, it will go the same way in the future. So that is absolutely a great way or predictive intelligence or, you know, being able to say this is what we could expect or this is what we might see based on what has happened in the past um, as opposed to just saying this is this is what just happened. So awesome. Um, now, <laughs> another follow-up question to that. Based on what you've said and based on Intel being so data-driven, um, would you say it is possible for someone to be outside of the region and still be able to call themselves or still be able to actually be an Africa expert in quote, um, like an Africa intelligence expert, even though they aren't um, present in the region? Or do you think a physical presence is necessary in, in order to be able to establish that level of expertise? So I don't think a perpetual physical presence is necessary. Uh, I think an occasional physical presence is helpful. Now, uh, let me put it this way. Uh, before the U.S. actually uh, conducts any kind of operations, say, let's use Afghanistan um, as an example. So there was, an, there was a war in Afghanistan. And um, yes, you had people on the ground, but prior to people being physically present in that location, a lot of the information that um, the country would gather on their target, on their target, um, is happening away from the target. Correct. So, for example, if I'm going to go invade Afghanistan, I don't currently have people there, uh, but I'm going to use all sorts of means, technical means, and maybe eventually, you know, hope to get a source or two that can give me some on the ground insight um, on cultural intelligence. Um, however. The vast amount of data and information and even intelligence I'm ending up piecing together or putting together uh, would have been derived away, physically away from that location. So um, Intel, you know, like I said earlier, really has to do with a lot of reading. And the more you read about a location, the more you, you follow and track everything that's happening in a specific location, uh, just being aware. And the reading has, it's you're not just reading about incidents, for example, you're also looking at, uh, you know, cultural things that are taking place, you know, um, local dynamics, political structures, and, you know, the socioeconomic impact. You're putting all these things together to really have an understanding of that location. And so this is, this can be successfully done by an Intel analyst or a team um, away, physically away from that location. So I don't think a physical presence is absolutely mandatory for you to be a good analyst. Um, in fact, I think I argued that uh, recently, again, when a colleague, uh, you know, tried to insinuate that, hey, you can't really speak about um, incidents that are taking place in the Northeast uh, because you're not physically there. 
um, so what I explained was, well, first of all, I had physically visited um, just a few months prior. And mm-hmm. again, that occasional visit is necessary just to help reinforce some of what you already know. It does help to talk to people physically on the ground. It just, what it does, it gives you a bit of a better understanding of things. So it may help fill in some gaps, but again, it's just one gap out of, you know, like an entire picture. So you have an entire puzzle and each piece is a different thing. You know, one piece can be satellite imagery and then one piece is about, um, you know, data, open source information that's gotten um, on that location or on that target. And then maybe, you know, a, a, a conversation with someone on the ground is just an additional piece. Uh, so it's helpful. Like in my case, um, I had always pretty much the entire time I was working um, in the military, um, working Elan, we were looking primarily at Afghanistan. That was our primary um, area of operation, our AO. Um, and so it was inevitable, first of all, that I would have to physically visit that location. Um, but prior to that, I was still considered an SME, a subject matter expert on that location. Now, the physical visit just helped help things out a little bit. It helped make sense in terms of the terrain. So when they would talk about the terrain, I could see the terrain on the map. You know, I could see it was hilly, I could right. see pictures. But there's just something about physically being there that I think just helps you really get a grasp and helps you understand what's really transpiring on the ground. So like I said, uh, it is... It is helpful um, to be occasionally physically present, but a perpetual presence is not absolutely needed um, to be an expert on a location. Great. Um, Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, But I also think on the other hand, um, you do have, we definitely have a lot of um, misinformation. We have a lot of delayed information. We have a lot of inaccurate recording and reportings here within the region, where I think sometimes it's difficult to read an article, um, open source or even even from the government that'll say, you know, this was the incident, this was what happened, these were the number of casualties, et cetera. Um, But except you confirm usually with a source on the ground, um, it's it's difficult to get an accurate picture of what exactly took place. So what you're explaining, Um, you know, I'm sorry to just kind of butt in there, but what you're explaining is, is what, we would look at in terms of um, source ratings, right? So you have to rate the source and you have to rate the uh, credibility of the information that you're getting. So this happens right. even in like public or military intelligence, uh, whoever it is that sources, um, you have to rate how good they are, you know, how reliable they are right. to the source reliability. And then the information they're giving, you have to rate the credibility of it. And when you put the two together, you're able to then identify your A1 sources. So those are the guys who are absolutely reliable sources. And the information that they give you is almost 100% times credible. Um, Just so that you know, rarely do you have a human source that is an A1, okay? Because um, A1 sources are usually technical intelligence gathering um, equipment, or but it's usually technical intel sources. So... If I take a picture of a location, if I'm physically listening to and we have recordings of conversations, um, you know, if, if I have a video, FMV, so full motion video uh, of a, a target that's moving from here to there, and we are able to physically see him do that. Um, if I have seismic information because of geosensors that are in the ground that tells me, look, that there's something that's been buried here. Um, then those are more, you know, higher rating sources and, more, you know, more reliable sources, right. more credible sources. Uh, so this, so what you're explaining is just, it's a general problem that you have when you're relying on humans, which happens to be the main sort of source of information, I guess, on the continent. And, and this is why, right. you know, we, I just keep pushing uh, for the need for Intel to sort of shift a little bit, or they need to start incorporating more technical means of intelligence gathering, um, because that would help eliminate eliminate some of these gaps that we keep seeing when you're just relying solely on human sources. Uh, so again, you know, but even with human sources, you can grade them, um, you know, and make sure you're getting first hand. But the difficulty with that 
is, for example, imagine if I am Abuaka Shikau, right? Shikau is the leader of program. And I say, you know what? Today we are going to go bomb Asorok. And I've made my decision. And the person, you know, in the, the person I confided in perhaps is your source, Buki, right? And the person comes and tells you, Buki, I heard firsthand Shikau says he's on his way to bomb this location, right? And, it, and right. so that person is a credible source, reliable information. However, you can't yeah. take into account the fact that, you know, Shikau has a running stomach that day and decides to call off the operation, whereas you have mobilized to protect right. against that. And then, so what happens when all of a sudden it's called off? Do you then call your source a low rating source? Was his information unreliable? Was he, uh, you know, um, was his information not credible? And is he an unreliable source? No. So uh, again, when you when you really rely too much on human sources, that's where we, we come into these challenges of of not not being sure about the quality of information you're getting, or you know, waiting for confirmation and all these things. Um, and the way we would always work around it, um, from what I remember, is that you just you have to just be careful and you have to be patient. And you have to be able to identify clearly if this is a probable, a possible, or a completely unsure um, piece of information. So Intel analysts will always have to give that caveat. If you're completely sure about this and you say, hey, you know what, this is, you know, we're sure about this. But then if you're not, you say, look, you know what, it's, it's good information. It mm -hmm. comes from a good source, but, you know, anything yeah. can change. So we just want the consumer of that Intel to be aware of that challenge. Absolutely. I remember um, until date, a lot of my reports go out, you know, with with the starting starting with the sentence or starting with the phrase unconfirmed reports, you know, because again, it's you just you never know, you know, sometimes and you you do want to push out relevant information in a timely manner. And you might not always be able to wait um, that 24, 48 hours, whatever is necessary um, to confirm 100 percent um, what you're putting out. Um, so you do, you know, throw in that caveat and say, hey, um, I think this is the case, but, you know, I'm not 100 percent sure. Um, so, yeah. So jumping a little bit from the private sector to um, government intel in, in the region, in the country, do you think there is any sort of um, private sector, public sector um, intel sharing or cooperation? I know in the U.S. you have things like OSAC. I know um, different um, agencies also have their, you know, liaisons and whatnot. Um, but is that is that in existence in the region? And if it is, um, is it any good? So they exist. Now, um, you mentioned OSAC. It's obviously it's everywhere, right? It's in, it's in all countries that have uh, US embassies and consulates. And so that exists as well in Nigeria. However, uh, the composition, I think, of people who attend that a little different. So you do have sort of local you know, security or intel experts, um, private security personnel um, mm -hmm. who form that organization or who attend those meetings uh, with that. Now, if we bring it to the government sector, you know, how often does the government actually interact with the private sector providers? Now, you have to look at it in terms of priority. The private sector providers are focused on profits. I mean, it is, we have to make money where they're the same <laughs> business. And the government is not necessarily focused on profit. They're just focused on sort of looking good and things like that. Uh, and so that's where that disconnect is. And what that causes is the guys in the private sector just don't have time for parades and, you know, the excessive frivolities. Like it's not about the look, you know, it's about right. the efficiency and, um, and then the profit from that. Whereas the, the government is just really about the look. So we're gonna have this stakeholder meeting, okay? And I want all these guys from the private sector intel to be a part of it, Bulwark, come be a part of our meeting. I need you to tell us, you know, let's liaise with uh, the guys from the defense intelligence so you can tell them how we can defeat, you know, or tackle insecurity. Now, have that meeting, you know, we as a private sector provide a lot of good information to the guys in the public sector 
um, and then we give recommendations and then we leave and everyone parts ways and then the government does absolutely nothing with that, right? And so next yeah. time I get called for that meeting, how keen am I going to be about showing up? Not very much. Why? It took resources, but it didn't actually pay off in any way whatsoever. Uh, so that's that's kind of looking at it from the private sector and why you may have some private sector people not as interested in working too closely with the government um, of public sector intel. Now, the public sector, on the other hand, also, they deal with a lot of, um, you know, they have a lot, of, a little bit of an ego and 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 dealing with bruised egos is not something that they enjoy doing. Uh, what happens is when they deal with the private sector, they're made aware, the public sector is made aware of its incompetencies and it, it becomes glaring. So for example, um, you know, just recently in Nigeria, there's this conversation about whether or not to include private military contractors to actually help neutralize these terrorist groups or terrorism that's taking place. Uh, whereas um, there's a public, you know, regular military that's there. Now, if the private sector or the private military, the PMCs come on board and they do a good job, it then makes the military, the public military look bad. And so sometimes yeah. they're just not interested or we're not going to be interested in doing that because I'm not about to, you know, be comfortable with you making me look bad, you know. So, again, it's it's a priority issue, I think. I think both sides have different priorities. Uh, the, the public sector is focused on, you know, doing good and so that they look good politically and, and all of that. Whereas the private sector is just about the efficiency and making sure that their clients who are paying them are satisfied with the work. So their collaboration can happen, but I don't think it's anything that's really deep. And um, we there have been increased uses, I think, of, of private sector um, intelligence groups working, maybe being invited to bid on contracts, for example, with the public sector. And then in such a case, because the, the bottom line of the, of the private intelligence company is going to be met because it's a bid, right? And it's going to be a for-profit right. job. Then they may be more willing to interact and collaborate. But other than that, you know, I think that's, there's a lot of friction in that, in that regard. Great. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, the, the friction is definitely there. Um, I think if well done, the both parties could absolutely benefit from, you know, a good working relationship, some sort of cooperation. Um, but then again, these things can't really be forced. But um, do you think something like tactical um, intelligence that you mentioned earlier um, would be, because I, I would hope the government has some sort of um, tactical intelligence on ground. And if that relationship was there, would that be something that the private sector could benefit from without having to establish their own um, tactical intelligence um, sources or findings? Um, no. So if you think about it, even here in the States, uh, you have cases like even even though you have a pretty functional police force, for example, you still have cases where people hire private investigators, right? Um, right. Private services for um, security services. So uh, you're always going to have that. You're always going to sort of have the need for private um, service providers, security and intelligence service providers, because again, the goals of the public sector and the public um, intelligence and security personnel are completely, they're different. Uh, so you're always gonna need that in Nigeria in particular. And, and just one point really on the last question that you asked, you know, with the advent or increased use of platforms like WhatsApp, we've started seeing cases where private um, groups such as ACES, for example, American, uh, Society for Industrial Security. So uh, you have ACES groups for the different local chapters uh, popping up on WhatsApp where they share tactical um, intel, okay, of, of things that are happening. So they discuss uh, security events, they provide um, alerts, and they help out with growing networks. But in addition to that, you then have um, public sector uh, practitioners. So you're going to have some, um, you know, maybe uh, public 
intelligence personnel who are part of that group. So they do get to sort of share uh, that tactical information. They do get to collaborate, I think, on on the discussion basis. Um, but but when you're doing that on a social media platform, then it's not as it's not official. Okay, so it's a bit more of an informal uh, collaboration that's taking place. So that exists. Um, but then at the same time, I think if if the public sector pretty much had a stronger um, setup and, and things were a bit more secure in a location, um, you you probably would not require the use of private um, intelligence providers or you know private security providers as much. If if the public one worked pretty well, you would only hire the private guys for specialized uh, requests. And so I think you know in in one way. Uh, you know, the private guys sort of benefit from the instability and, and benefit from the incompetence, I think, of the public sector, wherever they are incompetent. Um, but then it's also, you know, we also recognize the fact that it's less risk um, for, for us and for our clients um, when a location is safer. So, you know, and I, so I think overall, I mean, the private sector definitely wants a bit more of a more stable and a more safer society so that they can, you know, do their jobs well and 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 make sure that their clients don't die while while they're doing their work. Uh, but then at the same time, there's that looming threat of being out of business uh, because of stability. And unfortunately, yeah. I know it's it's weird thinking about it that way, but unfortunately, this has been sort of the dance, and and this has also been the accusation. I think is the word of why. Uh, insecurity and the insurgency in Nigeria is ongoing because they're seeing that people are benefiting from this sort of war economy and because right. they want it to keep going. So it's almost, you know, you almost have guys who are jeopardizing the peace process because they're benefiting from the conflict. And, and that's a problem. Absolutely. I mean, if you, you visit places like Maiduguri, for instance, the cost of real estate has absolutely shot up because NGOs have to have housing, you know, people who are working in that region need a place to live. And so if you own a building or if you own land or whatever the case may be, or a hotel, then you're making a lot of money. So again, not, not necessarily civilians, but again, a lot of people are benefiting from instability, including, um, security outfits and intel providers as well because it's just um comes comes with the job description but uh, awesome uh is a, another question do you think there's been any politicization of intel in the private sector um by the government and what i mean by that is there is there ever any influence um, or any pressure to make Intel um, or to make your data say something other than what um, the actual case is. And I know it, it might not necessarily apply because you're um, dealing with clients and you know you're you're trying to um, give them the most accurate um, information possible based on you know um, the relationship and they've paid for a service. But is, is there ever any, um, again, pressure from the government to change or, you know, interpret data a certain way or make it look a bit more favorable than what it actually is? Okay, as much as I hate to admit this, uh, the answer is yes. Now, uh, we do service both private sector clients and we have our public sector um, clients as well. And... Um, this especially happens with the public sector clients. So I'll give you a specific example um, on our case. Um, so we were invited and I pretty much was um, invited to come give a presentation to one of the intelligence um, organizations in this African country I'm operating in. And um, if you're probably aware about one of the main issues, I think that a lot of the countries, I think, in the West African region have been dealing with have to do with what, what is considered Fulani ethnic militia. Now, the fact that uh, you, there is no other terminology for this group of people who happen to come from the same ethnic group 
um, there's no terminology and are violent. There's no other word or, or uh, moniker to use for them. So they're just considered, you know, they're named after the, the terrorist organization is named after a tribe. Okay. So right. already walking on eggshells. And let me give you an example. You, Buki, come from the Yoruba tribe. And there are a bunch of loose guys who are just committing all sorts of atrocities and they happen to all be Yorubas. And so now we're going to call them the Yoruba ethnic militia. And mm. um, in some cases, what they do is so violent that we even call them Yoruba terrorists. Now, you right. now head uh, one of the intelligence agencies um, in your country and you happen to be Yoruba. And so I come to give a presentation and I'm showing you about all the threats um, in that location. And one of the threats happened to be these Yoruba extremist groups or this Yoruba ethnic uh, militia, or these Yoruba terrorists. Uh, so in such a scenario beforehand, I was, you know, made to sort of share my slides ahead of time. And when I did, I was also told to take out any portion on that slide that mentioned the ethnic group. Um, for sensitivity purposes, because a lot of people who are within the agency are from that ethnic group. Um, so yes, so that is, I think, I don't know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that is a pretty clear case of a politicization, I think, of the truth, of the intel, of the real, um, with the insight of what's going on. And unfortunately, the worst part of that, about that is that it prevents there from being a solution. You know, if you right. can't even talk about the problem. Um, yes, and, and I understand, you know, it also has to do with cultural sensitivity, right? We need to uh, sort of be aware of that. You can't just, I can't just go in there and start talking about all oh, these Yoruba terrorists. You know, it's not right. It's not going to feel right even on you and on people there who are Yorubas and who are trying to show that there's a difference between, you know, the guys who are perpetrating the crimes and, and us. Uh, but again, it just it makes it such a difficult um, problem to solve, and and we and it's it's unfair because even in an intelligence agency, uh, people who know the truth are having to walk on eggshells and are not really able to report intel as it is, you know. Yeah. So yeah, so that definitely happens, and and I know if this happened to me, then most definitely it's it's I'm sure happening uh, to others who have to do the same thing. Yeah, that's that's an that's an interesting point you made at the end, you know, especially because if you you definitely cannot have a solution if you don't even know what the problem is in its entirety, you know, cuz giving a presentation that's, you know, halfway complete or missing some essential points, you know, then it's not that's not a full brief. Um but so do you think some sort of cultural sensitivity needs to come into play um, where these groups are given a, a different name or a different title, um, either officially or just within the Intel community. So that way you're able to actually present on said group without, you know, actually offending anyone. I agree, you know, and this is a no brainer. I mean, this is a perfect solution, right? I agree with that. But then you'd be surprised at how difficult it is to arrive at a solution in a room full of people that speak, you know, 500, and 500 different languages. So uh, it's it's difficult. Nigeria, for example, is a very difficult, and this is not just unique to Nigeria. I think this is unique to many other West African countries uh, because there are so many different minority ethnic groups um, that if I were to come forward and say, say for example, the Yorubas have been fighting the Igbos for a long time. And so now there are these people called Yoruba terrorists, the Igbos can't stand them. And then all of a sudden I come and I'm like, you know what, for sensitivity purposes, I don't want to refer to them anymore as Yoruba terrorists. Henceforth, you know, I'm going to refer to them as just, you know, Western terrorists or something. And you're going to have those Igbos, you know, screaming up a storm and say, never, you have to recall it what it is. And, <laughs> and so we can't even arrive at something as simple as just a name change. But you're right. I'm also of the firm belief that 
if we found, you know, at least within the Intel community, uh, a, a different name, I think, should be given to it. But not just even in the Intel community. I think the media as well, and this is where just that general internal right. communication comes in. But even the media has to adopt that name. It has to be a name that is, you know, a bit more culturally sensitive. And maybe in doing that, you know, it will be easier to talk about the problem. So I do, I do think that's, that's necessary. And uh, hopefully it's something that can be adopted soon. Hopefully, um, but I wouldn't hold my breath on that. Um, so just, just to wrap up, I'm just going to ask um, one or two questions, just more focused on, you know, you and not, not so much, you know, we've talked a lot about private sector, public sector, you know, so um, just, just to get a bit more about, you know, you here. Um, so moving from the U.S. to Nigeria, um, practicing culturally, um, just in general, how would you say those two experiences differed? And um, what are some things, maybe, what, what is one thing um, maybe the US Intel sector can learn from the Nigerian sector and then one thing the Nigerian Intel sector can learn from the US uh, Intel sector? Um, <laughs> well, I think there's a lot that the Americans, uh, well, that the Nigerian, you know, or the African Intel sector can learn from their Western uh, counterparts. But one of the first things is what I mentioned earlier, which is increased use in technology. And just really right. understanding that, you know, relying only on human sources, which is human, is such a single source. And the very, uh, not only is it a single source, um, uh, of information, which is very, it's it's not such you know it's not recommended, uh, but then it's also a very unreliable source, right? Humans cannot be a hundred percent. So I would just right. like to see the Intel community just investing more in developing uh, technological intelligence gathering tools that would help them uh, identify what the key issues are, the problem areas, the targets, and, and then neutralize that accordingly. So that's one key one. I know one of the arguments and one of the issues I think the intelligence community in Africa has is they oftentimes, and not just Intel, I think even in the military as well, you know, when you complain that, oh, we're not being sold the weapons and the tools that we want. For example, you have uh, tools like Palantir which, you know, if we know a lot of the intelligence um, units and the IC in the intelligence community in, in the U.S. uses, uh, but Palantir will not be sold to non-U.S. Um, users. Uh, so, mm. yeah, so imagine if, you know, one of the African countries, um, the intel agency wanted to, to utilize that tool because it's an effective intelligence analysis tool and then being told no. So then you want to kick up a storm and say, oh, we're not being sold this weapon or this tool or this equipment, you know, by the West and, and all that. But no, how about you start investing in your own solutions as well? So I think, and, and when I say investing in your own solutions, if we look at how Palantir came about, you know, it, it was private sector, young tech guys that you know, had an idea, had a solution, uh, presented it to the government, and they got funding from one of the intelligence agencies in the U.S. They got funding to be able to develop that tool. They've developed it, and now it's being used by the intelligence community in the U.S. And so you can't just come out of nowhere and say you just want to just buy it off the shelf. So I would definitely like to see a bit more investment, I think, um, in our own solutions. So Africans need to invest in that. Um, now, as far as vice versa, uh, which is what Americans can learn from from the African um, intelligence providers or African intel, um, you know, maybe it's just um, that's that's something I have to actually sit down and mull over. A little bit. Uh, now that is what I call a tricky or a trick question. Uh, it's tough, you know. It, it's pretty tough. I know. Yeah. I know there are a lot of benefits, but I feel like. Um, some of that has just been learned from even Afghanistan and their experiences in Afghanistan, right? Maybe understanding uh, local politics and dynamics and how they play into um, just security of a region. Um, I think that's one of the key things. So it's not always going to be about, you know, just bravado and all these tech tools and all that. Sometimes, you know, people, 
the attackers or the threat, you they use rudimentary techniques. And so sometimes when your head is too much in the tech cloud, you can't really see that they're just using just good old fashioned tactics. Yeah. So I, I know one of the solutions, one of the things that they do uh, for officers um, is that in addition to learning um, how to use all these uh, electronic gadgets and how to use all the electronic and geospatial maps and all that, then at some point, you know, you switch off all the computers, they switch all that off and they bring out good old paper maps good old pencils and rulers and erasers and chalks. And they're like, here you go, you know, let's figure it out without tech because you will find yourself, you know, in a situation where you're dealing with, with um, adversaries that are rudimentary, you know, and so how do you deal with that? And so I think maybe that's one thing that they can learn, the Americans can learn, is just how do you go back to the basics when you need to, when there's no power, when there is no cyber, no internet connection, how do you still accomplish and get the work done? Great. Um, I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure if Africa um, is at that stage as a result of choice or just because that's where we find ourselves. Um, but I, I agree that you know sometimes you just need to go back to the drawing board and say, okay what is this at you know the very basic level um it's not it's nothing technical it's nothing um really complicated it's really just very simple um and sometimes it's the simple things we miss because we're looking for we're like it can't it, it can't be that simple there has to be more to it and sometimes that's that's just it it is just that simple all right um, so just last, um, last question really. Um, so as a woman in security, um, there are not a lot of us out there, um, at least compared to our male counterparts. What are some challenges, if any, um, that you faced while you were um, in the Intel sector abroad, as well as you know, setting up your own firm and dealing with other Intel providers here in the region? All right, so there are two different ones. Uh, the first one kind of reared its ugly head uh, the other day where I had a colleague who sort of uh, accused me and said, well, I don't think you are in any position to speak on this topic or speak about um, happenings in, in the region because you didn't even train in the region, right? So because I, my experience with Intel had to do with uh, what was occurred outside of, of Africa and occurred in the US, then you have this person or these people who are thinking, well, you are no authority and you have no authority to speak on the topic, okay? Now that is few and far between, but it is still definitely one of those sort of looming uh, issues that you know I occasionally have to deal with. So I find myself, and I've had several situations where I've been called to address a room full of generals, right? Um, in this particular yeah. case, it was actually a room full of all the, say, defense attaches um, uh, from the okay. Nigerian military, and they all gathered together in this room, and I came to talk a little bit about the role of Intel and what they do. And, and you know, I've done solid presentation. I mean, you know, I, I give pretty good presentations and all that. And then at the end, they're like, okay, any questions? And the first question that came up was like, so are you American or are you Nigerian? Like, what are you? you know, what are you? Uh, so, you know, and that's the tricky thing when you're dealing with the Intel um, community, you can't sort of be both, right? You have to be one or the other. And so I know, I know that's definitely one sort of curve that I'm always having to maneuver. But uh, do you think you're having to maneuver that because you're a woman? If you were a man, do you think you would have had to um, or you would be posed the same questions or, you know, that would be this recurring thing where you would constantly have to defend your nationality or defend your um, expertise as a result of said nationality or said background? Um, no, and so there are pros and cons to being a female um, operating in this in our industry in in Af you know across Africa. So one of the things is that because you're few and far between, you you stand out. Okay, and so I tell people that I benefit from what the uh, advertising, what they call top of the mind recall. 
So top of my recall is the fact that a, a well-known brand like Coca-Cola keeps um, putting out commercials and they spend a lot of money on commercials. And you're thinking, but you're already well-known. Why are we still paying for, why are you still spending so much on marketing? And then they tell you that's because we want to make sure that anybody who thinks about cola or a refreshing drink thinks about Coca-Cola first. So that's top of my recall. So now, again, because yeah. I'm a female um, in in the industry, and oftentimes when you have a panel and it's just all guys and they want to mix it up, they're thinking, "How? Oh, where can we get a female? Ah, we know a female because we're few, you know, I'm few and far, we're few and far between. So I, you know, I do benefit from that sort of top of my recall that what in America is called affirmative action, throwing the female in there, and in Nigeria it's called female character, right? Um, now, you are right. I don't, you know, I do feel that um, I already know um, before I start any sort of presentations or any addresses or anything, any jobs, I already know that I'm going to be judged by the fact that I look a certain way as a female. Um, and so I, I choose instead to focus my effort on, on delivery, so on the job. On the moment I open my mouth um, and I'm done speaking, I need them to see what I'm saying and not necessarily see me. Okay, physically. Um, right. So I think I think that has kind of worked out for me because I would have I know like, <laughs> I know Africans just kind of speak their mind, right? So you you would, you know someone would uh, you say okay any questions and then the first person grabs the mic and it was like oh you know when you first walked in I thought who is this small girl coming to talk to us and you know but then the moment you open your mouth you know I realize wow you know what you're saying and I'm like well. You know, dude, if I didn't know what I was saying, would I be here? Uh, but, <laughs> but again, this, I, I know, I understand already how these things work. In fact, and it also has to do with a cultural, there's a cultural aspect to it as well. So, for example, I've had a situation whereby, you know, there's some parts of Nigeria where they don't shake the hands of females. Okay, so if we're, you know, in a lineup and the guy is coming, you know, the head is coming and he's like shaking everyone's hands. And then the moment he gets to me, he's, you know, just going to completely ignore me and move on to the next person. So I've learned, again, not to sort of take offense to these things. I've learned to understand that there are cultural barriers um, that have sort of made people act the way they do, especially with regards to females in this industry. So, um, so yeah, there's always going to be that, that barrier. But I think that the way a woman can stand out or females can stand out in uh, in this such a male-dominated industry is just be known for what they do. So just being good at your work so that when you do speak, um, you you know they agree that, okay, you kind of know what you're saying or uh, and, and you're able to stand out because of the quality of your work. So that's what I've been bargaining on and, and that's sort of been my, my little... Uh, joker card or ace card i don't know i don't play cards but <laughs> that's awesome. now your second question um answered a question or your second um, point answered the question that came up um while you were giving your first point because you said top of the top of the mind recall and you gave the example that you know there, there's a panel they're all guys okay who can we throw into the mix and i'm thinking I, I might be slightly offended by that because it's like you didn't call me based on my expertise or based on my knowledge. You, you know, I came to mind as almost an afterthought. Uh, but then, you know, you 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 said in the in your second point, you know, the only reason why you even came to mind is because of your expertise. Because again, you aren't the only um, female operating in the sector and the region, but there's a reason why you in particular were called. Um, so it definitely um, has layers to mm -hmm. it. I remember um, the first time I met you, I, you know, I had that conversation and I said, you know, there being young and being a woman in, in, in the, the security industry in the region, you step into a room and it's it's very easy to be overlooked. You know, it's very easy to just kind of um, blend into the crowd really. And, you know, if you don't, if you don't say anything, if you don't speak up, um, you just pass as, you know, really another, another phase. Um, 
people might notice you as someone they haven't seen before or whatever, but um, you haven't particularly um, made any impact or any, um, you know, you haven't, you haven't really done much or accomplished much um, by being in, in that space. But, you know, you, you said, you said two things that, you know, kind of stuck with me. One was, you know, just speaking up, you know, making sure to speak up in a room because that way, um, people, again, I guess that that um, does bring us back to this first point that you made, but people do remember you, especially if you know what you're talking about, if you know what you're saying. Um, they remember you because you're a woman, because there aren't a lot of women in there, but then also because you were a woman who spoke and knew what they were saying. Yeah. Uh, I think the other thing you said was just, you know, about having that that experience, having that um, U.S. military background really be a big influence for, you know, how you're perceived um, in terms of, you know, knowing what you're talking about and, you know, being someone that has worked for what we, most people would consider a, a competent um, government, you know, security force and being able to take that knowledge and bring it back because, again, you didn't you didn't have to um, you don't have to be here, you know, you don't have to work in security, you don't have to put that knowledge forward, but you're choosing to do that, you know, and so being, having that create that um, level of respect for you in the industry as well was the other thing I took away um, from the, the meeting we had initially. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's a delicate dance that I often have to dance every day, you know, and you know, and, and I tell my husband this all the time and he he had to sit me down and he said, well, Tawa, you need to decide what you want to do. So as much as you want to be um, sort of an authoritative figure in the industry and be known for that, right? Put yourself out there and everybody knows who you are and all of that. Um, that's one aspect. But then if you want to be a real Intel person, Intel people, Buki, are not out there. That's just not what we do. And so that's why oftentimes, you know, I would go into the shadows or not speak as much on things. Um, even sometimes that's because I can't. I cannot speak on actual things that are being worked on. I do, you know, some presentations. I do some trainings. I do consultations. You know, we do jobs for, you know, that for very sensitive clients um, in the public sector. And I cannot... You know, it's not one of those fun jobs I can do a selfie about and be like, hey, you know, look at me. It's really cool. And I'm working with amazingly cool people that you would never expect, but I can't put that out there. Um, right. So there's there's often that delicate dance that, that I have to dance in terms of, you know, being uh, a, a thought leader on it and being out there and exposing myself or just being the quiet Intel person um, that, you know, just gets the job done, gets paid and, and you move on. Uh, so yes. it's, yeah, it's tricky. Um, and I don't know if I'm doing a good job at it, to be honest, because I'm sort of an, at, like I'm an all in person, right? So I'm either all left or all right. Uh, I hate having to go back and forth, but sometimes it calls for that, uh, with the nature of the work that we do. And mm. yeah, and that's a tough one. And, you know, and that point you made about, you know, being offended by that, you know, like I said, Nigeria is a place that you could be extremely offended about being a woman there simply because of the way you know they act the way they speak for example and it's not they're not doing it like from a a bad place this is just right yeah again cultural <laughs> intelligence right so just no right you know for example I, I i heard that um one of the um briefings that that people get when they're coming to to work in nigeria for the first time and they say hey here's the thing you know nigerians yell a lot Okay, so they're not upset at you. That's just how they communicate. <laughs> so, you know, so just being aware of these peculiarities and then just deciding, right. you know, first of all, I'm not going to get offended about any of this. Um, and I'm just going to try to just do my best and hopefully make a difference while, while we're at it. Absolutely, absolutely. And you, you said you don't know if you're doing a good job. I think you're doing an incredible job. Um, I think another thing, another way I used to um, gauge whether I'm doing a good job sometimes is just, you know, do people go out into the field and come back alive? Do they go and come back, say, was there zero incident recorded? 
great. I think I, I think I did my job right. Um, so having having those little um, indicators sometimes does help because again in Intel we we are the quiet people in the back. You know, you're not operations. You're not on the front line. Um, so it, it is difficult sometimes to know um, whether you're doing a good job, you know, the, the real impact of the work that you're doing. Um, but it's out there, you know, people, people see it, um, people use it, people use the information that's being put out there. And again, you know, saving lives on a, on a daily basis, usually without knowing it, um, because Again, with with Intel, if you do your job right, you're never going to know, right, what um, incidents you prevented. But um, that's just this this will be one. Um, but awesome! Thank you so much um, for hopping on. Thank you for um, really just allowing me to ask uh, um, some questions and just pick your brain on these issues. Um, Thank you for allowing our listeners as well to benefit um, from your knowledge and from your experiences. Um, and yeah, thanks for hopping awesome. on. Awesome. Thank you so much, Buki. And you know, you keep up the great work and I definitely hope to see you around more soon. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Have a good you one. Too. All right. Bye.